Yeah, I was saying, sorry for the air conditioning being out. However, Anna, Kate, Terry, do you all have air conditioning? There will be air conditioning at late night, so one more reason uh, to show up. So what we're doing uh, this semester is we're walking through the book of Acts together. I'm going to keep in mind it's hot and try to keep it quick, which uh, is actually the Gospel of Luke Part 2 is all it is. And Acts is the account, this is what Luke claims, that because Jesus is alive and ascended into heaven, he continues his unstoppable work in this world through this weak thing called the church. That's what Acts investigates. And so tonight what we look at is the reason that Luke claims the church is unstoppable. It's because of the Holy Spirit. And all I would say to that is, even in today's day, being spiritual is kind of cool. But there's a lot of confusing uh, thoughts about what it might mean to be spiritual. Tonight... According to the Bible, being spiritual means being connected to the Holy Spirit. You can really watch what happens in Acts 2 and ask yourself, okay, am I spiritual? Am I alive? Let me, let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would unfold to us tonight uh, the beauty of Jesus. Um, those of us who have ne- never seen it and received it, and those of us uh, who have for a long time would uh, once again believe that Jesus is good. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, here is Acts 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men of every nation under heaven, and at this sound the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I'll pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The grass withers, the flowers fade. Word of God, it stands forever. Okay, two things tonight. 
That's going to ask uh, the text, what happened at Pentecost? And what does it mean? First, what happened? To be honest, this is strange. Wind, fire, uh, talking in different languages, not your everyday experience. And I would argue this is a unique uh, experience in redemptive history. But what is going on here? If you simply look at the fact that it happens on this holiday called Pentecost, this is where you start to learn what it means. Okay, Pentecost was an annual Jewish celebration, this holiday. Had two meanings. One, I'm going to be quick here teaching. It was, a, it was a harvest holiday. So you would bring in the first fruits of your, uh, of your crop. You'd wave it before the Lord and expect that a greater crop, a full crop, crop would come in. And so it was a way of trusting God and thanking God that He would send something that would sustain and fulfill you. Okay? But then the second thing was this, Pentecost. 50 days is what that means. It also was celebrating that 50 days, as tradition uh, held, after God delivered Israel from Egypt, from being in slavery to Egypt, they walked in the wilderness with God for 50 days, and they ended up at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, a big deal happened. Moses, who was their leader, ascends this mountain where God shows up in fire, this is sounding familiar, in smoke and wind. And what God gives His people after He saves them is the law, the Ten Commandments. But far from the Ten Commandments just being random rules, the Ten Commandments are actually a reflection of who God is. Perfect love. And so what Pentecost is celebrating is that God loved His people so much, He gave them His law, which was supposed to point them in the direction of what it looks like for them to be the people of God. This new community that would love God and love people. That's what Pentecost was about. And connect the dots a little bit. Why did God pick this day? Because whatever's going on here is proclaiming that something's coming that's going to sustain and fulfill you like a harvest. And, think about this, Moses ascends this mountain full of fire and smoke. We have just seen, if you were with us last week, ascends up into heaven. And now there's fire and smoke. And he sends, not the law, but he's going to send something that's going to create a new community that loves God and loves people. And what you begin to realize is that Pentecost, this holiday, was always about this. The work of Jesus. And a quick application is this. Acts 2 shows us that Pentecost is about Jesus. And Acts 2 reinforces something we talk about all the time in RUF. That the Bible is one story about one thing. And it's about Jesus. Like what is Leviticus about? It's really strange. It's weird. Why David and Goliath? Why does God ask Israelites to kill a lamb and put the blood over the doorpost? All these kind of things ultimately... It's about Jesus. Every holiday celebration is pointing forward to Him. Every character in the Bible, though real, is pointing to Him. Every law, every narrative is building up to this one point. That Jesus is God become man to live in this world, to heal it, to save people, and to restore this whole world. And the Bible is just not about you. And it's not about me. 
So, it's, so the Bible is not a system of living. It's not this moral code. It's not some, some way to navigate this world, though those things are in there. The Bible is about the greatness of the one true God who created this world and restores it by the death of his own son. Which means for asking the question, what does it mean to be spiritual? It starts here. That being spiritual means that you begin to see that life is not about you. It's about Jesus. It's about Him. And so that is the, that is the um, what happens at Pentecost. So what does it mean? Verse 14 through 24, Peter, after these observable events, he gets up and he preaches a sermon. He interprets for everyone the experiences that they just saw, which happens often in the Bible. And here's, here's what he says. It's actually incredible. He quotes a passage from Joel, a prophecy from, from Joel, and he declares that this is what Joel said would happen, that God's Spirit has now been poured out on all flesh. That what you are seeing, what's going on here, is that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, God, three persons, one God, is being poured out now on all of humanity. So the first meaning of Pentecost is this, that Jesus really is with you and is in you. This is what uh, Sarah Gresham read, that Jesus looks at his disciples. This is really strange. Before, the night before he's going to die and then be resurrected and eventually ascend, he says, it is better that I depart from you so that I can send the Spirit. And that just doesn't... That doesn't seem right. Why would it be better for Jesus not to be physically here? He says, I've got to go so that I can send the Spirit. But then he says this, Behold, this is the Great Commission, I am with you always. So how can Jesus depart on the one hand, but also say it's better for me to go and I will be with you always? The answer is this, and he sends his Spirit And that's what all this fire and all this wind is showing. Because if you read through the Old Testament, when God shows up, there's wind and there's fire. Whether it's in a bush, a burning bush with Moses. Whether it's when he shows up in the temple in the tabernacle with a a pillar of fire and wind uh, uh, amidst the whole place. God's presence is fire and wind. And now what they begin to observe is that there's a pillar of fire... Not in a temple anywhere, but over their heads. It's inhabiting them. That the temple of God is not a building. The temple of God is people. So me and my kids do this all the time, right? Here, what is it? Uh, here's the building. Here's the steeple. Open it up. And there's the people. It's actually, here's the building. Here's the steeple. Open it up. And there's the church. The, t- the church is the people of God. That's why my kids are weird in Sunday school. The temple is... Where the Spirit dwells, which is you and me. Now, I want you to think about this because this sounds awfully strange. And, and sometimes I, I think about this. I mean, if you grew up in, in the South, you've kinda, you're still growing up in somewhat cultural Christianity. So, so I mean, we just say things and you hear things, and even if they're true, I don't think we realize how weird they sound. And so, like, you've got to imagine yourself sitting in the union, and let's say you're talking to a friend, and that person's struggling, and you look and you say, well, yeah, but the Lord Jesus is inside you. Like, sometimes I, I just think about someone who isn't from around here, not a Christian, and is listening to that, it just goes, that's weird, right? <laughs> I mean, it's true, but it is bizarre. 
And listen, the idea of God dwelling in you would have also seemed crazy to the Jews. Because God is holy, holy, holy. And so He's like the sun. He's the source of all life. He's pure. He's wonderful. But if you get close to Him, it'll destroy you. Because we're impure. Because we're dirty. uh, Because we're finite. And His character has to destroy all sin and all impurity. And so this becomes the question of the Bible. Is how can God, who is holy, who is loving, who is pure, promise to rid the world of all evil and all wickedness and dwell with His people and me not be done away with because I'm evil and I'm wicked? That's the problem. How can God promise to punish all sin and yet be a forgiving and merciful God? Those don't seem to come together. The answer... The Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit shows up in your life, you apprehend and you receive the gospel. Look what Peter says, right? He says, when he starts talking about Jesus, this pure and innocent man, the God-man, was crucified and killed. Verse 22 and 23. Why was Jesus killed? He had no impurity. He had no sin. He had nothing to be shamed of. So why is he dying? He must be dying for someone else's sin. He must be bearing the punishment of my sin and your sin. And that's it. He's being my substitute. The only way that people can be right with God and have God actually dwell in them without God compromising His character is if God allows a substitute in Jesus Christ. And you know the Holy Spirit is within you when you see and receive this truth. That the greatest act in all of history is that God the Father loved you so much that He sent His Son who lovingly endured the cross for you. And at the cross, Jesus gets treated as if He's me. And all my sin, and all my shame. And He gets vanquished and destroyed. So that now evil can be destroyed without God destroying me. Because I get treated as if I'm Jesus. And I get His righteousness and His purity and His forgiveness. And so the Holy Spirit is in you when you realize this. My only trust, my only hope is nothing about me. It's not my record. It's not how sincere I've been. It's not my quality of my prayer life. It's not how my week looked. It is in Jesus. In His perfection and not mine. And so the Holy Spirit's primary job is to actually pull back the cobwebs over your eyes and enable you to see Jesus. To be spiritual isn't wrapped up necessarily in your individual, I'd even say many times subjective feelings of ecstatic worship, though that can happen. What it means is that you apprehend the objective truth of who Jesus is and what He's done for you. And so what that looks like is, man, when when you blow it, like when you blow it on a Friday night and you wake up Saturday morning and you feel the shame of what you did, if you actually look outside yourself that morning and your hope is in Jesus who hung there naked, a symbol of shame, to take my shame so that I have none, that's the Holy Spirit. That's Him alive and working. Or when you look at your life and you're disappointed and you think, 
God's got to be disappointed in me. I'm like disappointed in myself. If you look outside of yourself and your hope is in Jesus and you're able to say, well, yes, I'm a disappointment to myself. But my standing before God, His love for me and my hope has never been about my successes. It's never been in the quality of my love for Jesus or in my failures. My hope has always been in Jesus' work on my behalf. That's the Spirit showing up. That's apprehending the gospel for the first time or again and again and again. I can remember a conversation with an REF student years ago. And he had, um, frankly, his first few years of college, they were fun. Don't admit it. He told you they were fun. But it was decisions of, of just self-destruction with, with, um, with girls, with drugs, just whatever he wanted to do, he did. And then, um, then he was converted. And I was talking to him like a few months after, uh, and he just seemed a little different this time. And, and he was anxious, and, and so as we started talking about what's going on, he just, he just finally said, Brian, I, I, I'm just scared. How do I know that months from now I won't revert back to how I was living just a year ago? And what I looked at him and said is this. I said, look, I guess I can't guarantee that won't happen. But I can guarantee this. That if you do go back to that, I will be with you. And even better, Jesus will be with you. If you do go back, your same hope is what it is today, that Jesus' love for you and your acceptance before Him is in not how well you're following Him, but in what Jesus did for you. That's what the Spirit alive begins to look like. And so first, Pentecost means that Jesus is with you and in you. Second of all, Pentecost means that, that God begins to change you by His Spirit. Again, go back to that holiday, uh, you know, that celebration picture. Moses ascends amidst smoke and fire onto the Mount Sinai. And what does he bring back? The law, which, which then gives them this loving direction of how to be this new community that's going to love God and love people. And now Jesus ascends. And what's coming? Fire and smoke. But he doesn't send the law. He sends something better. He sends the Spirit. The Holy Spirit that's going to renovate people into this new community that's going to love God and love people. And so, I understand this illustration would never happen, but just imagine, for some reason you got a call from the White House and President Obama decided he was going to come, I don't know, he just wanted to check out Mississippi, so he's going to come live in your house for two weeks. Okay, what would happen if someone with that authority, that power, um, that magnificence decided to come dwell in your house? a lot of stuff would start happening. Like security would show up and, and do all kinds of stuff. Furniture would be moved around. Uh, all kinds of things would be rearranged. Broken things would be fixed. Houses would be clean. Why? Because I was doing all that stuff? Yeah, probably not. <laughs> but because of who the president is, this stuff would start happening. It has to, because he's coming. And see, when the Holy Spirit shows up in your life and begins to unpack Himself in you, and if if you're the dwelling place of God, stuff is going to start getting rearranged. Stuff's going to start being renovated. 
And He promises to start making you reflect the beautiful character of Jesus. The one who is love. And so what goes on at any time that you see like self-pity replaced with humility? Or any time you see uh, violence begin to be replaced with forgiveness and patience? That is the Holy Spirit renovating someone. And the biblical word for that is repentance. And if you get to the end of chapter 2, we didn't, we didn't get there. But Paul says, therefore repent and believe. That the Holy Spirit, when He shows up, He brings repentance, which is just another word for change. And the repentance that comes into your life, if you're a Christian, means that you begin to look like Jesus. And this is amazing, because if you read the Gospels, Jesus, yes, He is fully God. So everywhere He goes, you see what God is like. But Jesus is also fully man. And He is a man that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. He prays by the Spirit. He does miracles by the Spirit. He has all the fruits of the Holy Spirit uh, fully alive. So He's patient, self-controlled, gentle. He is love itself. And so Jesus is, here's what you realize, the archetype man. He is who we were made to be. He's what we're supposed to be like. And so the Holy Spirit comes into your life and He goes to work. And He starts renovating you to make you like Jesus. And He does it by... By what we talked about first, by continuing to hit you over and over again with the beauty of Jesus. That He's more tender than you think. He's more patient than you think. He's more gentle than you think. That He's he's truthful, but always with love. And as you experience that with Jesus, guess what? You start becoming one who loves enemies, who cares for the poor, who forgives, who is patient. Quote um, Russ Whitfield, a friend of mine. The Holy Spirit, what He does is He clones the heart of Jesus in you. So that your heart begins to beat with a love of people and a trust of the Father. That's His job. And so look, the Holy Spirit is going to change you. And that is, on the one hand, comforting. Because if you're like me, you can be a Christian for a while and you look up and you think sometimes... I'm not sure I've made any progress. Man, like he's at work. And he's not going to quit until you're like Jesus. And so there's always reason to hope. Always. And we don't believe that. We look at people in our family and say, well, my dad will never change. Or we look at ourselves and we say, well, I'll always be like this. That's just not true. The Spirit is real. But it's also terrifying. Because what it means is Jesus is going to change you. There are things in our life that we have built our life on that feel safe, like other people's approval or my reputation or fill in the blank. And Jesus is going to come and say, I'm your identity. Everything's coming down. Everything is coming down. And I'm going to change you. And so... The Pentecost means that uh, Jesus is in you by His Spirit. It means that He changes you. And lastly, it means that He forms this new community, right? We're going to see this over and over again in Acts. But look at the tongues. The tongues are not here an unintelligible act of praise. They are declaring the mighty works of God, who Jesus is, in languages that are foreign normally to them, but these people from all over the nations can hear the gospel in their own language. 
And so what you're seeing is this picture. I mean, when, when you see that list of, of nations there, that is covering north, south, east, west. Uh, honestly, there's even Gentiles there, Jews there. And what are they doing? They are all, in their own language, hearing the beauty of the, of the uh, crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus. And almost any commentator will point this out, that what you observe right here is the reversal of the Tower of Babel. It's okay if you don't know what that is. If you go back to Genesis 11, something strange happens that, that this community of mankind reaches the pinnacle of their rebellion as they build a tower up to make a name for themselves. They want to be God. And what God does is He comes down and He confuses their language and He curses them. It's actually an act of mercy. So that this division comes and it causes them to spread into the ends of the earth. And now what has happened? Jesus, the God-man, has one salvation and he has gone up. And instead of cursing, he sends his spirit down as this blessing that unites everyone under his word. And he starts now bringing people together from every cultural background, tribe and tongue and nation. And they are united together, not by personality, not by race, not by cultural sameness. They are united by Jesus. So God is lifting the curse of Babel. The curse that sin brings real division in us. And he's showing us that one day all of humanity from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be united in submission to Jesus. And that means to be spiritual means that you come to realize this. Everything in my life takes a back seat to Jesus. Every other way that I identify myself, race, personality, sorority, uh, economic class, uh, uh, successes, all those things are in the backseat because of Jesus. And so if you didn't know that the Spirit is at work in you and your group of Christian friends, man, it's when, it, it's when a community forms that is not dictated by sorority, by personality, by cultural background, by race, by socioeconomic class. But that Jesus disenfranchises you from everything else that used to identify you and you drop it. And you become a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multiracial group of real friends under the name of Jesus. That's what the Spirit showing up looks like. Far from it being just this unexplainable inward experience, it means looking outside yourself for hope in Jesus. It means real change coming in you, and it means developing this new community of people from every background united under Jesus. So let me end here. I'm going to quote Joe Novenson here. What this really means is if you're a Christian tonight... I I did choose my words carefully here. That means you are the most powerful person on the planet. Do you realize that? You're united to Jesus by His Spirit and you have God inside of you. And what that means is this room right now, now maybe there's a bigger group of Christians together, I don't know. But this room right now is probably the most powerful group on campus right now. And that just sounds silly, doesn't it? Like, look around. We're like, we're a bunch of nerds. Um, I am. 
And yet, you have God inside of you. And some of what this is saying is this. How dare us? Like, how dare us use that power to put others down and prop ourselves up? How dare us use, use, use that power to use humor, humor to tear others down so that I can build myself up? How dare us use that power to exclude others so that I can feel safe? How dare us use that power to disadvantage other people so that I can become rich and okay? Because the God that is in you emptied himself of all things. Emptied himself of power and majesty so that you could become his. And what it looks like to begin to follow him is it looks really weak. It looks like we lose. It looks like we forgive. It looks like we love people who don't understand us. It looks like we give our money away. It looks like we're patient with people. It looks like we share the truth boldly with people, even if it hurts. Because that's what Jesus is like. So look, if there's conviction tonight, okay. Join the crowd. The answer isn't to shame yourself. The answer is to do what the Spirit calls you to do, to look outside yourself and see Jesus. And He loves sinners. Actually, He only loves and comes to be with sinners. And what that means is that God God can be anywhere that He wants to be. Anywhere. And He wants to be with you. That's amazing. That's who He is. Do you know Him? Are you spiritual? Paul will say later on that unspiritual people cannot apprehend the things of God. So you're going to know if the Spirit's at work? Do you want Him? Are you a sinner that has a huge problem with God? But I realize my only hope is Jesus. The natural person doesn't want that. If you want it, you're Him. It's free. That's Jesus. Let me pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for Pentecost. Thank You for um, loving us so much um, that You refuse to just stay apart, uh, but you came and you took on flesh and you walked in this broken and hurtful and evil world and you experienced shame, you experienced being sinned against, you experienced temptation and you did it all with an unwavering love of the Heavenly Father and unwavering love of people. And we pray, Lord, um, that you'd make us more like yourself. Lord, would the community of RUF be more like Jesus? Um, We've got a lot of repenting to do, starting with me. Um, Would you do that in your son's name, I pray. Amen.